this morning we will be um, in Isaiah chapter 50. So if you have a, uh, a physical Bible, want to turn there, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 50. We will be in verses 4 through 9. Uh, the text is in your bulletin as well as um, on the screens uh, for you. You know, we've been walking through uh, the four servant songs of Isaiah uh, in this Advent season. And as we have looked at these, we are desiring to focus our attention this Christmas season that can become so filled with lots of good things, right? Giving gifts to our family members, our friends. Maybe there's Christmas parties at work or whatever else. There's a lot even going on here at church. There's a lot of good things. But this year is my hope and my desire for us. Anyone that's in the pulpit would have the same desire is that we would be looking to the baby in the manger as the focus of Christmas, looking at who he is and why he has come. And remember that this season is all about God breaking into humanity through a baby. So let's go ahead and turn to God's word. This is Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. I did save the longest um, servant psalm uh, for Chuck for next week, by the way. Just try to stay on top of that. I get five verses again, and they're five great verses. But Chuck will look at the longest one next week for us. This is Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakes, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today. In this, your word, seeking to know you in a new way, to see our sin more clearly, at the same time to see your son who comes to save us from that sin. Father, we need you each day, especially in this moment. Spirit, move amongst us. Allow us to hear the word that you would have for us, that we would be sharpened, that we would grow closer into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Father, be with us now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So earlier this week, my wife, Allison, took our older daughters to swim practice, and I had Audra by myself in the evening. So we went uh, for a little walk around our neighborhood, I put her in the stroller, and she loves to be in the stroller. So I put her in the stroller, and we started walking around the neighborhood, and it was about 4.30, okay? So 4.30, 4.45, so the sun is somewhat setting. 
uh, starting to walk through the neighborhood, and you know, the timers of all the, all the lights are starting to come on, and I'm seeing like the inflatables blow up, like in people's yards, right? It's kind of funny to watch that. Um, but they're blowing up, and the, tr- the lights are turning on, and you know, she's really amused at this, right? Like we're going from house to house, and she's seeing all the Christmas decorations. We see a Santa, she's like, there's Santa and the reindeer, and then go to the next house, and it's all the Disney characters, Mickey and Minnie, who she loves, and when we were at Disneyland in the last year, she had Pluto gave her a kiss on her hand, so Pluto is her favorite. So we saw several Plutos, right, and she was just loving that. And we get to a, a manger scene, and we would talk through that some, right? I'm trying to disciple her in this, right, as, a, as much as a two-year-old uh, can receive, right? I'm trying to say this is really what Christmas is about, right? Then we go through the neighborhood, and her favorite character, actually, in all of Christmas is the Grinch. (laughs) It's funny, because she doesn't know that he's a bad guy, right? Well, I didn't think she knew, because so we pull up to this house, and there's lights that are strung on the roof line, and it's like coming down off, and there's like a wooden Grinch, like as high as me, and he's like pulling the lights down, and he has a little smirk. You may have seen this in your neighborhood. It's super, uh, it's really creative, and so she's like, Grinch, Grinch, Grinch. She could see him from far away. So we pull up to the house and we get there. And she's like, she looks at me. She's only two and a half, okay? She said, the Grinch is actually a really bad guy. <laughs> and she kept saying that. The Grinch is actually a really bad guy. And I'm like, how do you know that? Like, I mean, maybe she put two and two together with the movie that she's watched, but I don't think so, right? And I've later found out that maybe her sisters taught her that, or they've also talked about Grinch in the little Montessori school that she's in. Um, but in all stories, right, there's that one person who is the bad guy, right? If you look at any narrative, movie, TV, books, even the scriptures, right, that there is good going forward and there is some bad guy to try to stop it right and in this case it is the grinch trying to steal christmas away right bad guys going against the good of the protagonist that is the narrative of almost anything that you will read or watch or listen to there's someone bringing opposition to the good of the story so when we talk about the story of jesus When he comes down to earth, a baby in a manger, he also encounters opposition from every side. And actually, what we see in the story of the Bible, the bad guy of the Bible is actually the very people that Jesus came to save. That is who opposes him. That when Jesus comes, humanity strikes the servant of Isaiah 50. When he takes on flesh. In our text today, the Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the servant will endure suffering. He will endure strife. The very people this baby comes to save will oppose him and hang him on a tree. Yet amidst all of this, what we see is Jesus, the servant in Isaiah chapter 50 that we're talking about today, is committed to his work. Despite the opposition, the suffering that he will face, he is committed. Yesterday, I was in the street with my kids. We don't have a very busy street, so it's not dangerous at all. In my street, in our neighborhood, and they got skates recently. The first time. You know how it goes. First time skating. Horrible, right? It's a horrible thing for them and for me. They're falling a lot, and I have two of them, and I'm trying to pick them up when they fall. 
and I'm holding their hands and I'm holding their bodies so they don't flail over. And I remember one of the kids fell. And they said, this is too hard. This is too hard. And I said, Haven, you can do hard things. You can do this. She's needing some encouragement from us, from me, right? When we face, maybe it's not skating as a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, opposition. When we face opposition in our lives, often our gut reaction is to say, I can't do this. But Jesus, when he faces opposition, he does not fold. He does not say, I cannot do this. He is fully committed to completing his work on earth. And that is our big idea for today, that Jesus is fully committed to completing his work on earth. And we're going to look at two different things. At first, the listening servant in verses 4 through 6. And then secondly, the confident servant in verses 7 through 9. Okay, so let's look first at the listening servant. This is just starting in verse 4 alone. It says this. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Remember in the last six weeks or so, we've talked about when we read Scripture, passages of Scripture, and we see repetition is really important. One thing that we see throughout this text is this, these two words back to back, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. This is four different times. So there's emphasis here, right? So we need to start with seeing that, seeing that God, the Lord God, is the forerunner of this text. He is the one in whom the servant is receiving his call and his provision from. That the servant recognizes his role given to him by the Lord. That he is a disciple being instructed by the Lord so he can accomplish his task. And in verse 4, he names two different things, right? His tongue and his ears that are being instructed by God. And Isaiah speaks of the Lord giving the servant the tongue of a learned person. And sometimes you'll meet someone for the first time, and you start talking with them, and you can say, you've had some education, <laughs> for sure. They talk in a different way, right? They use language, maybe even, like, I don't understand often. I'm like, I don't know what you're saying, but yes, that's cool, right? Like, we, we, can, we can see and hear when somebody is, we understands things that we do not. And this is here, it says, the Lord God gives the servant the tongue of a learned person. That he gave him an understanding, an ability to speak words to sustain a weary world. At the same time, he gives him the ear of one who listens fervently to God. Notice in the text, it says morning by morning, he was listening to God. Every day, morning by morning by morning, he was being taught by the Lord. And it's interesting, we've talked about this some in this series already, to think about the servant learning, right? Because we know as New Testament Christians, who is this? This is Jesus, right? So it's interesting for us to think about him needing to understand something that he doesn't already get. But it shows his humanity, right? We think a, a lot of times about Jesus as divine, and he is 100% divine. At the same time, we need to remember that this eruption of God into creation is through a man, that he is 100% man also. Hebrews 5.8 tells us that although he was a son, he learned 
obedience. The God-man would learn obedience in the flesh, completing the work of the Father. The text tells us morning by morning, supposed to make us think that this is daily, morning. He could have said it five times. Morning by morning by morning by morning. He listens to God. He is a listening servant, hearing the word of the Father constantly. I'm going to ask you this question later, but I'm going to prompt you now to think about this idea that if the servant, God's very son, would listen to the Father morning by morning by morning, how much more do you and I need to listen to him? He goes on in verse 5 and 6. says this, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus listened to the Father, and what did he hear? To be obedient to the task that I have given you. And he did just this. That the servant, the text tells us, did not turn his back from the work that he was called to do, even when opposition and suffering would come to him. He accepted the punishment that was not due to him. He gave his back to the whippings, his face to the torment, his very being to the disgrace that humanity would shovel upon him. Scholars talk about the beating that verses 5 and 6 explain or give us a picture of as the same beatings of the time that would have been given to a convicted criminal. You're convicted of a crime. This is what you get. This is what verse 6 is showing us. But the servant, we know, was not guilty. But he voluntarily allowed himself to suffer. Remember earlier in in 1 Samuel, earlier in the semester, we talked about the ideal king, right? Then we went to the calling of Saul, the king after like the nations. And he said, this king is going to take, take, take. It's the opposite of the Lord. He gives, he gives, he gives. That's what we see here in verses 5 and 6. He gives his back. He gives his cheeks. He gives his very being. We have a giving God. That this servant listened and was obedient. That he chose the way of suffering. One theologian says this. He, speaking of the servant or Jesus, walked into opposition, eyes wide open. That there was no place Jesus wouldn't go. Nothing he wouldn't do to care for the weary people with the truth of God's grace. That Jesus ran towards the fight, not away from it, to bring the word of God to the weary people of the world. I think it's good for us to ask, how was this servant of Isaiah 50 able to endure such hardship, such pain, such suffering? Because if you're anything like me, you go through these things in your own life. And you're saying, I'm out. I'm tapping out of this one. I can't do this. I cannot. So when we think about the incarnation and Jesus himself enduring this, 
I ask, how was he able to do it? And you might say, well, how was he able to do it? He was God, of course, Pastor. Right? He was God. But let's remember that he was also a man. 100% God, 100% man, enduring the suffering, the pain that we feel. And I want to argue that I think that part of the reason that he was able to endure because he was obedient in listening to the Father. That God gave him, the text tells us, an awakened ear that he took on the instruction from God that he was so close to him. Just like a good disciple listens to the instruction of their discipler and internalizes the words, Jesus listened to the Father. How was he able to endure? To argue that part of the reason is that because he was so focused on the Father and his instruction. He was dedicated morning by morning being instructed by God. So when the blows of life came at him, he did not fold. He was not rattled. He was focused on his task. Now, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that I've been watching this show uh, called SEAL Team. Great. It's not probably not for everyone, but it's a, sometimes I feel like uh, I work with my mind a lot, and I like to see and think about people that work with their hands, right? Like this. It's all about a SEAL team that goes out and is fighting the good fight for our country. So it's tracing the story of this one team of men. And in a string of episodes in this last season I watched, there's one of the men is the first captured Navy SEAL in history. This is what the narrative is telling us. In several episodes, it shows us, as he is captured, the agony that he goes through, the torture, the suffering he endures. It shows it in grueling detail. And in captivity, the SEAL kept reminding himself of the training he received for this very situation. He's saying, don't show the enemy fear. That was part of his training. Remember what you're fighting for, your faith, your family, your friends. And throughout this time, he's constantly reminding himself of his training to endure this suffering. There's a happy ending. Somewhat his team comes in and saves him. And when he returns, he's having to be interviewed by all kinds of agencies in the military to re-enter into service. And they kept asking him, it's one of these clips where they ask the same question over and over again by different people. And they kept asking, how did you endure the captivity? And over and over again, he responds, I remembered my training. In the same way, when Jesus endured suffering much worse than this seal, diminished that. He remembered his instruction from the Lord. His awakened ears were attentive to what the Lord had to say to him, that it was embedded in his mind, his mission. And he listened to the Father morning after morning. This is God's Son listening to the Father. So again, I'm going to come back to that question. If the servant of Isaiah chapter 50, Jesus Christ in the flesh took the instruction of God. If he listened to it morning by morning by morning, how much more do you and I need that very instruction? Because we know that we are fallen, but he is holy 
we are sinful and he is perfect yet without stopping he listened to the instruction of god are we doing the same thing are we prioritizing the word of god in our lives you know in, in my job here i have a running to-do list and i categorize it in all different ways but one of the ways i categorize it is by priority so i have some things that are like super high priority it haps, has to happen this week i have like a medium priority can happen in the next month. Then I have another category that, like, stuff I'm thinking about, like, and it's categorized when I have time, which is never right. That list has been there for a couple years, right? That's what happens. Sometimes, without intentionality, getting in God's word falls to that category. If we're not really being careful with our time, with our priorities, spending time in God's word falls to when I have time. And I'll tell you, just like my rolling to-do list, it doesn't happen. You never have time, right? So we need to be consistently listening to the Word of God. To be in the Scriptures, relying upon the Spirit to move in our hearts, so when the blows of life come, we can say, the Lord is with me and I can endure. Now, I was even careful to go this direction with this text, because we never want to be a church that's be like Jesus, right? So reality is that I know that I'll call you and me to be in the Word. And that we will fail at this for sure. We said, tomorrow I'm going to be in God's Word. The next day I'm going to be in it. The next day, the next day, the next day. One day you will fail. But here at Christ the King, and I would say the broader Christian faith, is not about your own strength to do this, but in the strength of Jesus who has done it. Right? So even as we pursue Jesus, we do it with his strength behind us, not our own. Knowing that even if you fail ten times in reading your Bible, like I'm calling us to, he he does not love you any less. But what we see in Jesus is he heard the instruction of God. And I would encourage you as your pastor to take this seriously. When I was in college, I had a, like a two-year-long relationship that had stemmed from a friendship. So I had known this girl for a long time. And <clears throat> we went through a rough breakup. And um, this is not in my notes. This is, what, this is where you get in trouble, right, Chuck? <laughs> we went through a really rough breakup. And I could not find up from down. I, I, I didn't know what was going on. And all I could remember, because I was raised in the church, was people telling me that I needed to turn to Jesus. Okay, turn to Jesus. What does that mean? Okay, so I took my Bible and I opened the book of Psalms for the first time in my life and it changed me. It changed me. I was a Christian before that for sure. But when you're in God's word being nourished by him, it's a different life. It's a different hope. Since then, my life has been drastically different. And you may be like me. You may have walked with Jesus for a long time. But I would encourage you to get in the Word. To get the nourishment that God intends you to have through His Word in 2024 to give you some help, some structure for this, right? I'm trying to give us some some structure for application, right? We're going to start a church-wide 
Bible reading plan, probably something very minimal. I'm talking about like one chapter a day. This could be like literally one minute. Okay? But I want us to remember how important this is. We preach a lot of grace here, a lot, right? A lot of grace. And I think we should because I think the Bible is a grace-focused word. But at the same time, there is a need to be called into action when we are believers, right? Because he intends for us to be nourished. And I don't want us to feel like we can't look at being called into action as legalism. Because the truth is, the Bible is there with us. It calls us to be diligent into reading God's word. So I'd encourage you, let us take that seriously. Okay, let's look next at the confident servant. This is verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 says this, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. So those words are there again at the top of this verse. The Lord God. It is God who is helping the servant. And what we see is that in contrast of the shaming and the abuse that the people of the world are throwing on the servant... The Lord God is bringing the opposite. He is bringing aid and help. God has given him this role in his daily instruction. And what we see here is the servant is confident that the Lord will be with him amidst his trials. The text tells us that his face is set like flint. Maybe you know more about rocks than I did before I read this passage. I didn't know what flint was. I'm like, I kind of get the idea, but I'm not quite sure. Well, I looked it up and flint is actually a very hard stone. Very, very hard. And what the text is trying to say is that the servant turns his face towards God with unbreakable commitment. That the servant of Isaiah that is fulfilled in Jesus is completely committed to bringing salvation to the world. Often we can think about our faith being dependent upon our own strength. And that's why sometimes... The application, we have to be careful there, right? I never want you to feel like your worth or your level of faith is dependent upon you, on your strength. But it is dependent upon the strength of this servant here. That what we see in this text, that we have a Savior, a servant, who is dead set on fulfilling the duties that were required of us. He is dead set on it. Not only that, he is dead set and fully committed to accepting the punishment that is due for you and I for not fulfilling those very duties. So our faith is not reliant upon our own strength, but on the flint-like perseverance of the Savior. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about this boy, this baby in a manger, dedicated to the work of the Father. No matter what comes his way, he will persevere to the end. Despite the suffering he would endure, he knows that God will be with him. goes on to verse 8. It says this, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. So this verse, it paints a picture 
of a servant facing opposition in a courtroom. This, the next two verses are laced with this language of being in a court of law. If the servant were put on trial, no one could convict him of sin. That's what the text is saying, that before the Lord and before humanity, he is without stain or sin. And this word vindicates. It's a forensic term that means brings the verdict of innocence. In this verse, there is no one who can stand and say he is guilty. But the Lord God himself, the creator of the universe, the judge sitting on the throne says he is innocent. Somewhat mocking, the prophet says, is there anyone out there to condemn me? I dare you to come forward. I dare you come. That's how confident he is in his vindication from the Lord. It goes on in verse 9. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who can find me guilty? No one. Those who are there to condemn me, they will be like dust soon, a garment eaten by moths. They will vanish. Jesus is committed to his task, committed to accomplishing his work, knowing that he is righteous and innocent. The suffering servant is vindicated, declared innocent by the creator of the universe. What I want you to focus on in this half of the text is the unwavering confidence of the servant of his vindication. His unwavering confidence of his vindication, of his declaration of innocence by the judge sitting on the throne of the universe. That this servant, Jesus, the baby in the manger, that he is completely confident that God will declare him innocent. He listens to the instruction of God. He endures suffering and he does not waver from the task of fulfilling the law on our behalf. That he is confident. But if we back away from the text a little bit, we think about ourselves in that same courtroom. Looking at the judge with our own life. Calling anyone and everyone to testify How is this man guilty? My soul shudders to think about that. Left to myself, sitting in the courtroom, the the verdict comes down every single time. Guilty, guilty, guilty. But the good news of the gospel, of Christianity, of Christmas, is that someone sits in the courtroom on your behalf. That Jesus Christ sits in. And he is vindicated. And the verdict comes down. Innocent on your behalf. The very servant of Isaiah that is vindicated by God, declared innocent, sits in the courtroom in your stead. And you can have unwavering confidence that you are declared innocent. That you are declared righteous because the innocent one took the punishment. The servant, Jesus, receives the punishment for our guilt that He not only perfectly fulfills the requirement that we were so short of coming up to, but He also takes our guilty verdict 
that we may be set free. And his innocence is given to you by faith. Nothing more. Trusting, having faith in Jesus, you're given his innocence. So I'll ask, if you don't have faith in Jesus, where does the verdict come down in your own life? Because when I thought about this text, and I thought about sitting in that courtroom on my own merit, I know my verdict comes down guilty. But in Christ, when you turn to Him and have faith and trust, repent of your sins, you're given the verdict of another. You're given the verdict of the servant in Isaiah chapter 50, that you are clothed in His righteousness and His innocence. This is why Chuck last week mentioned this idea of our culture kind of always having your phone faced at yourself, this selfie culture, looking at ourselves all the time. This is why we need, and theologians have said for generations, that we need to look to Jesus ten times more than we look to ourselves. Because when we see what Jesus has done for us, there is hope there. It is only in Him that we are declared righteous, that we are declared innocent, that our innocence is not based on our own actions. You know that as well as I do, but on the actions of another. The suffering of Jesus was not merited either, but accepted. In the same way, our righteousness before God is not merited on our behalf, but it is accepted through the work of Jesus, that Jesus takes our verdict guilty and takes the punishment so that we We get the verdict, innocent, righteous. That's what we see is Jesus is fully committed to completing his work on earth. Let us look to Jesus this Christmas season as the one in which our hope ultimately lies. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us in our sin as each one of us think about our own lives standing before a holy and perfect God we know that we fall short each day we turn away and Father we pray a prayer of thankfulness for having a plan to save us from our sin and that plan is your son Jesus being born in the manger fulfilling the law on our behalf and dying, taking our penalty. We know that death could not hold him, that he beat sin and death once and for all by raising on the third day. And today, as we come to this, your table, we ask that you would be here present, reminding us of those truths, nourishing your people through this means that you have given to us. God, we thank you for today. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.